Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, the rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> Uh, before we get into this, let me um, add one more announcement. Um, if you're looking for a summer, spring, summer Bible study, uh, my wife and I are going to be starting another Christianity Explored course that we will be offering in our home starting on May 17th. We're going to be meeting for seven Thursdays, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at our home, and uh, you're all invited. Um, it's uh, really a great study particularly for unbelievers, but it's good for young believers and really good for uh, anybody who just wants to spend some time with other believers looking through the book of Mark and um, learning more about the gospel. So we would love to have you join us. Uh, again, it starts May 17th, so in the next week or so, we'd love for you to sign up. We do have a sign-up sheet out on the uh, Welcome Center. If you know friends who would benefit from something like this, we would encourage you to invite them as well. So again, Thursday nights at our home, 6.30 to 8.30, Christianity Explored. <clears throat> uh, one of the most um, emotional scenes in the whole New Testament uh, is uh, actually um, a, a scene where the Apostle Paul is spending time with elders from a church in the city of Ephesus, and they are saying goodbye to each other. Uh, this is going to be probably the last time that they see each other. And according to the description, there's a lot of weeping, a lot of crying, a lot of hugging. And Paul and these elders are reflecting on three years of ministry that they've had together. And it tells us in the text that one of the reasons why they were crying and weeping is because they expected that this was going to be the very last time they were ever going to see the Apostle Paul. Because he was leaving Ephesus, he was going to a, a city called Jerusalem, and Paul fully expected that when he got to Jerusalem, he was going to die. He was going to go there and preach the gospel and most likely would pay for it with his life. And so here's this conversation. Paul and these elders, they're weeping, they're crying, last time they're ever going to see each other. And so Paul begins to talk to them about what they need to do in the future. And he gives them an exhortation. What is that exhortation? What, what does he encourage them to do? I mean, we might think, did, did he tell them you need to love each other? Did he tell them you need to care for the poor? Did he tell them you need to share the gospel with everybody you meet? All of these things are, are good things. But those are not the things that Paul told these elders in this emotional occasion. The last time they ever see each other, Paul's about ready to leave. And here's what he tells them. Watch out for false teachers. Watch out for false teachers. He says, for three years we've been together, Paul tells these elders. For three years. And during those three years, he says, I never stopped warning you about the reality and the presence of false teachers. And what Paul calls them actually is wolves. Now, we're going through a study on the book of 1 John called That You 
may know. <clears throat> and um, you might recall that we've talked about this already in 1 John. In chapter 2, John was telling us about those who are trying to deceive you. We took two sermons to talk about that. And you've been hearing me tell you that one of John's habits is he tends to repeat himself. And here we go again. He's repeating himself again. And as we get to chapter 4, he's returning to that same topic of false teaching. But here's one thing for sure is that when in the Bible something is repeated, here's something you can know. It's important. The reason why it's in the Bible so many times is so that you will pay attention. This was very important to Paul with the Ephesian elders. This is very important to John as he repeats it here in this letter, and it should be important to you as well. And so the contribution that we get from this particular text of Scripture um, is that John is going to give us tests by which we can evaluate the teaching that we hear, testing the spirits. And we're going to learn from this how we can discern the difference between truth and error as we look through these first six verses of 1 John chapter 4. So if you please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word, 1 John 4, I'll read verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Father, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word as the word is preached now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. John ends that passage by telling us that we can know the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so that fits in very well with the title of this sermon series, That You May Know. So when it comes to spiritual things, Often we think of this as something entirely uh, as a matter of opinion, but what John is telling us here is, no, you can know that some things are true and some things are false, and the way you can do that is by testing the spirits. So how does John tell us to do this? There's three ways we can test the spirits, and the first is this, ask this question, what does the teaching that you're hearing say about Jesus? The most fundamental, most important question to ask when you hear any kind of person speaking on behalf of God, claiming to tell you spiritual truth, what does the teaching say about Jesus? So John begins here in verse 1 by telling us to be discerning, right? Verse 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. The title of the sermon here, testing the spirits. Now, what is a spirit? I don't think John means that uh, you know, we're supposed to hear from ghosts, that spirit beings speak to us. 
Um, if we move on through the verse, he says, test the spirits to see whether they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So, um, John's not talking about spirit ghosts, but spirits who speak through false prophets. When anybody speaks on behalf of God, there is a spirit behind those words. There's a spirit behind the words I'm delivering you, to you today. And there's a spirit behind what false prophets say. And what John is saying is, just because somebody says they're speaking on behalf of God doesn't necessarily mean they are. And so you have to test what they're saying. And in fact, you have to be discerning. In fact, I would say you even have to be a little bit skeptical. You know, skepticism is not a, a word that is favored in the church. Generally, we're discouraged from being skeptical. But there is a healthy kind of skepticism that John is recommending to us here. I mean, there's two real extremes that we can get into as we listen to um, spiritual claims. One is um, to believe in nothing. So this is kind of, you know, hyper-skepticism. Um, everything is doubted. Everything is regarded with skepticism. That's just complete unbelief, which the Bible certainly doesn't recommend. The Bible is encouraging us to believe miraculous things like the resurrection of Jesus. So that's one extreme. Skepticism that leads to unbelief. But here's the other extreme. Some people believe in anything. Some people just receive whatever anybody says. And that's not skepticism, that's gullibility. And what John here is saying is, Christian, don't be gullible. Don't just swallow everything that's given to you. G.K. Chesterton said, don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. You know, being open-minded is to an extent a virtue. It's a good thing to an extent, but you can be so open-minded that you believe everything you hear. And that's what John is warning us against. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. When someone is preaching or making spiritual claims, you know, friends, it doesn't matter how big their church is. It doesn't matter how much education they have. It doesn't matter how many books they've published. It doesn't matter how many conferences they've been invited to speak at. You need to test what they're saying. You need to be discerning. And yes, that applies to me. And that applies to Pastor Brian. That applies to whomever stands behind this pulpit and preaches to you on Sunday morning. Test the spirits. Test what we're saying. I invite you to do that. I encourage you to do that. Test what you hear from this pulpit by the word of God. By the word of God. Just like the Bereans did. Acts chapter 17. They were hearing Paul preach. And it says that they examined everything that Paul said to see if what he was saying was in the scriptures. So if Paul had to be tested, certainly I do, and anybody else who would preach from this pulpit, I can tell you, friends, that in every sermon that I prepare, one of the prayers I always pray, all the time, Lord, protect me from error. God, please help me not to misrepresent your truth. Please help me to be balanced Please keep me from being a false teacher. That, that's a prayer that I have. I don't think that I'm above that, but one of the ways that can be prevented from happening is if you test me by the word of God in obedience to John, 1 John 4, verse 1. So what is the test here that John gives to us? Well, he goes on, verses 2 and 3. 
<clears throat> Here's the first test. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So, you know, pretty, pretty simple here. The question to ask of any teaching is what is it saying about Jesus? Now, when John was writing this letter, the false teaching that he was confronting was called Gnosticism. I've been telling you about Gnosticism throughout this study. The Gnostics were people who taught that the spiritual was good, but that the physical world was bad. The Gnostics thought that matter, earthliness, bodies were inherently evil. And so in the Gnostics' mind, there was no way that God could come into this world and take on human flesh because a holy God could not unite himself with sinful, inherently evil matter. That is, a body. But what John says here is, that's what antichrists teach. Do you see that in verse 3? Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist. What John is affirming here, particularly in verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, has come in a body, has come and taken to himself humanity. That, that's, that's, that's an assertion that a person must make to know that he is speaking and believing truth. This is the incarnation, what we celebrate every Christmas that the eternal, pre-existent, uncreated Son of God united himself to human flesh, to a human body, became a man, a fully human man, and lived on this earth. God become man. That's the incarnation, and that's what John is affirming here. It's absolutely important. Now, there's more to it than that, right? Because we also believe that Jesus is God, so we can't get everything we need to know out of this one verse, but if you just go to the end of this letter, 1 John 5, verse 20, it says this, We are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So what 1 John is teaching us here is that Jesus is man and Jesus is God at the same time. Nobody like this ever in human history. Jesus is man, Jesus is God. This is review. You might remember from several weeks ago when we were in 1 John 2 that we talked about this. Who is Jesus Christ? He is one person, but he is a person with two natures, God and man. Because he's God, he's able to pay for our sins. But by being man, he represents us who have the obligation to pay for sins because we're the ones who sinned. And so we have in Jesus this perfect Savior, the God-man. And what John is saying here is anybody who denies this is an antichrist. This is absolutely necessary to believe and is the first test that you should use in evaluating the spiritual claims that you, that you hear. Friends, here really is one of the main reasons why Jesus took human flesh to himself. That's so that he could take that body of his and lay it down for you. Sacrifice himself so he could offer up the perfect sacrifice for you so that your sins could be forgiven, laid on him 
so that you could become righteous through faith. This is what it says here in 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body, in the flesh that he took on, on the cross, so we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. First test. And my application with there would, would just simply be this. Do you believe that? Do you, get, do you get what I'm saying here? I mean, this might sound theological, but you know, th- this, is, this is the fundamental truth about the person of Jesus that the church has held for 2,000 years. This is a big deal. This is important. Jesus, the God-man. So that's the first thing. What does the teaching say about Jesus. Now, here's the second test. What does the world say about the teaching? So, as we go on through this text, notice here that John draws a link between the false teachers and the Antichrist. So, in verse 1, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world, and then he talks about this affirmation about Jesus in verse 2 that is necessary. And then in verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Those are the false prophets. And then he says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. So false prophets are actually animated by the Antichrist. You know, generally we think of the Antichrist as this, you know, notorious figure coming in the future. And I think that's true. But what John is telling us here is that Antichrist teaching Antichrist spirit is already present in the world. It's already here. Do you see that at the end of verse 3? The Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Antichrists are here, friends. And the way they act, what they seek to accomplish is to dupe you and deceive you into believing wrong things about Jesus. They're false prophets. Now, if you skip down to verse 5 we'll see the relation between false prophets and the world. In verse 5, he says, they, that's referring to these antichrists, these false prophets, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So what is the world? You know, we don't want to understand the world here to mean like sun and clouds and mountains and rivers. That's not what he means. By world, he means Everything that is set in opposition to God and his revealed will. That's the world. God and the world, the ways of God and the ways of the world are always set in contrast. They're set in antithesis to each other. They're antithetical. They're opposed to each other. And so John is telling us that this is how, one of the ways you can recognize the Antichrist or false prophets is they're coming from the world But at the end of verse 5 there, the world listens to them. See that? The world loves false teaching. The the world applauds it. The world runs after it. The world listens to it. The world responds to it and receives it. And the reason why is because the false teachers are telling the world exactly what the world wants to hear. I mean, that's what false prophecy is all about. That's what false teaching is all about. It's tickling people's ears, telling them exactly what they want to hear. And this is what Paul warned in 2 Timothy. He says, the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, that means wanting to hear things that they enjoy hearing, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. 
They'll find teachers who say what they want to hear and they'll listen to them. And so that's a sign of false teaching. As you look to see what the world says about the teaching, how the world responds. So, thinking through this, I mean, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking to myself, what is it? What's an example of a kind of a teaching um, <clears throat> that's, that's in the world now that the world has gone after, a teaching that the world loves and which should be a concern for those in the church? Because John is offering a warning here to those in the church. What is it that the world just loves but that is infiltrating the church in a way that should cause Christians some concern. And you might disagree with me in your life groups. You can talk about other examples of this. But, but what I see is what fits this description are the efforts that are going on in the church right now to reinterpret the Bible in favor of homosexual relationships. There's, there's a very active spirit, a very proactive effort, not, not just in the, the liberal church, in the evangelical church, to look at all of the passages in the Bible that would say that homosexuality is not compatible with Christian living. They're looking at those texts and they're turning them on their heads, they're reinventing them, they're interpreting them in entirely different ways. They're interpreting the Bible in a way that would allow the Bible to say that homosexual relationships are not just acceptable, but even pleasing to God. That's constantly happening in the church in this day and age. There was an article in 2015, Time Magazine. The title of the article was, How Evangelicals Are Changing Their Minds on Gay Marriage. Here's the quote at the start of the article. If evangelical Christianity is famous for anything in contemporary American politics, it is for its complete opposition to gay marriage. Now, slowly yet undeniably, evangelicals are changing their minds. With each passing day, it is becoming harder and harder to deny that change is indeed coming. Again, the context is, is, is the evangelical church here. Change is coming. Uh, the Pew Research Center has been um, doing studies on the acceptance of gay marriage and various different demographic groups and religious traditions among evangelical Protestants. Watch, watch what's been happening. 2001, 13% of evangelical Protestants approved of same-sex marriage. In 2008, 16%. In 2012, 19%. In 2016, 27%. In 2017, 35%. One in three evangelicals lending their approval to this particular lifestyle. A guy named Matthew Vines has started something called the Reformation Project. The goal of the Reformation Project is to get a gay-affirming evangelical in every evangelical church in the nation. They're actively pursuing this in order to change the minds of evangelicals. And in fact, what they, they call it the Reformation Project, that what, what they believe is that a reformation is needed in the church and that the heresy that the church is believing now is that homosexuality is, is immoral. And so they want to overturn that and they believe that this is going to be a new reformation of the church where homosexuality will be celebrated and accepted in the church. 
I want to be clear here, friends. I'm, I'm not talking here about those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, those people are in the church, and they are welcome in the church. We need to care for them. We need to come alongside them. We, we need to love them. We need to be sensitive to them. We need to walk with them. I, I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. That's a whole other issue. I'm talking about false teaching. I'm talking about people who go out and they read the Bible and they say what you have thought the Bible has meant for 2,000 years is wrong. It actually means this, and they tell you something completely different. And here's what's going to happen, friends. You're going to hear the clever arguments. You're going to hear them if you investigate this to any degree. And there's many bright people who are very creative. And you're going to feel more and more in the minority and you're going to be more and more hated by the world. And you're going to find yourself asking, did God really say? What I've believed all this time about this issue, maybe I'm wrong. Did God really say that? And that, that's, just, that's just the beginning. I mean, a general open-mindedness, yeah, I mean, I would affirm that. But this is not an intra-evangelical debate, friends. This is not a matter of opinion. The Bible is clear in many places. And it requires false teaching to get people to believe otherwise. I, I'm your pastor. I just want to say, the reason I'm talking about this, you've heard me talk about this before. I don't want you to think I'm, I'm picking on gay people. I hope you don't. That's not my intent. I'm just, I'm as your pastor, I'm concerned I'm concerned about you. I mean, not because you're gullible. You're not gullible. You're, you're a bright, informed, astute congregation, but the pressure is going to be great on you to change your mind on this. You're going to have to respond to it. My job as a pastor, just like Paul's job with the Ephesian elders, is to warn you against the wolves. I'm not saying gay people are wolves. I'm not saying that. But those who are teaching that the Bible accepts homosexuality are wolves. False teaching. Now, here's where I'm, I get concerned, but you know what? I'm encouraged, though, because of verse 4. Look what it says. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so, man, what relief do I get from that? And what relief you should, too, receive from that? I mean, we hear that passage a, a lot, you know. I mean, it's a favorite verse of many Christians. But do you notice here that it's in the context of false teaching? You know, this is not saying, uh, I just, you know, I'm not going to get a job. I'm just going to lay around all day. And, but I'll pay all my bills because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Or, you know, I'm not going to study for my exam, but I'm going to get an A because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. You know, that's, that's taking this out of context. The context here is suggesting that the one in you, Jesus, living in you by his spirit is greater than the influences and the pressures that the world will place on you to accept and believe false teaching. And he will keep you from falling, brothers and sisters. He is faithful and he will do it. And so that's the encouragement that I hope you take and that I take as well. The last thing, in terms of tests, as we test the Spirit, what does the church say about the teaching? That's another test. 
So look at verse 6. It says, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now there's a verse that really sounds like it's coming from an arrogant person. Doesn't it? Whoever knows God listens to us. Here's how you know if you're right, if you agree with me. And here's how you know if you're wrong, if you disagree with me. That's what it sounds like John is saying here. That's, you know, whoever agrees with me is right. But notice he's not talking about himself in the singular. He says, whoever knows God listens to us, he says. Whoever's, um, yeah, whoever, excuse me, I meant to go back to the start of verse 6. We are from God. We, he's using the plural there. And whoever knows God listens to us. So the question is, who is we? Who is us? In other words, who is it who is qualified to speak on behalf of God? That's, that's a big question. Who, who is authorized to speak for God? That's really the question this verse raises. John's saying, we're, we, we are. We can do it. We're from God. Whoever, listens, uh, whoever knows God listens to us. When John says we and us, the ones he's referring to are the apostles. John is an apostle. He's referring to those who have been chosen by Jesus instructed by Jesus, cared for, mentored by Jesus, and then commissioned and sent out by Jesus to preach and teach what Jesus had told them and to eventually write down those things that Jesus had told them on pages that would become our New Testament. And that's what Jesus was promising when he was telling his disciples, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He's talking to the disciples and apostles there. He's saying the Spirit is going to bring back to your memory what I've taught you so you can write it down so that people for centuries can read it and know the gospel and the truth of my word. And so that's what John is is talking about here. Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 5, excuse me, Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the household of God, that's a reference to the church, and the foundation of that being the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. So the foundation of the church is the teaching of the apostles. And what John is saying here in verse 6, we are from God, whoever knows God listens to us. Now, listens to the apostles is the way we can read that. Now, for 2,000 years, we've been listening to the apostles. It was 2,000 years ago that the New Testament was written. And so a very important question to ask as you're testing the spirits is, what has the church over the course of 2,000 years been listening to and affirming? What has the church been receiving and accepting? The the church is not infallible, but if the church has a 2,000-year record of affirming something, man, you better listen to that. that. That's what John is saying here. Whoever knows God listens to us. 2,000 years of people in the church listening and affirming and receiving. And so when we think about the person of Christ, God, man coming to atone for sins, that's what the church has affirmed and accepted for 2,000 years. The Catholics have affirmed that. The Eastern Orthodox have affirmed that. The Protestants have affirmed that. And within the Protestants, the Pentecostals, the Baptists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, we're all in agreement with that. That's what the church has received. That is a huge, enormous 
confirmation, affirmation of the truth of that teaching. That's why you've got to be very careful about the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Because they're departing, they're rejecting 2,000 years of church history. But if I could just say one other thing, just with regard to the issue of, of homosexuality, it, it, the same thing kind of applies, friends. There's no example in 2,000 years of church history of any branch of the church ever affirming the goodness of homosexual relationships. And we got to be really slow about tossing out 2,000 years of church history. It's just astonishing to see people so willing to do that, the, the defiance that it requires to turn your back on that history. A guy named Pannenberg, famous theologian, said this, if a church were to let itself be pushed to the point where it ceased to treat homosexual activity as a departure from the biblical norm and recognized homosexual unions as a personal partnership of love equivalent to marriage, such a church would stand no longer on biblical grounds but against the unequivocal witness of Scripture. A church that took this step would cease to be the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, 1996. So friends, here's my question. I just close with this. What about you? Are you, are you a person who is proud of your skepticism? You, you, you believe nothing you pride yourself on doubting everything. I, I would just exhort you to repent of your extreme skepticism and to come and place your faith on this Jesus who has come in the flesh to lay down his life for you, the God-man to atone for your sins, to save you and redeem you. But if that's not you, maybe you're a person who will believe anything. Is that you today? Are you gullible? Are you eating up everything that the world says? Are you buying in to the latest doctrine, the latest teaching? Test the spirits. With a Bible in your hand and the spirit in your heart, test the spirits. Ask, what does this say about Jesus? Ask, what is the world saying about this? Ask, what has the church said about this? And the promise here in this passage is that by this you will know the spirit truth and of error. God in heaven, would you please give us wisdom to discern the difference between truth and error. Lord, I pray that you would protect this congregation from wolves who would seek to deceive them, and I pray that you would protect this preacher from becoming a false teacher in their midst. Thank you, Lord, so much that you who lives in us is greater than him in the world, and we rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.